I did uh, fly from Seattle with excitement, and it's a great honor for me to participate uh, in this moment for this group of God's people. Let me just uh, lead us in a word of prayer, and we'll get at it. Lord, it is only by your amazing, transforming grace that we have any hope at all. And we are stunned that you would adopt us as your children and you would pursue us unrelentingly until your grace has finished its work. And that gives us hope for what we're about to do because you are in us and you are with us and you are for us and you have more zeal for our growth than we would ever have. And we pray that by your spirit you would soften our hearts, you would open your word, and we'd leave this place saying, in unique and personal ways, God has met with us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're one of God's children, if you have been adopted into his family by his grace, if your sins have been forgiven, you have also been drafted into his service. There is no child of God who is ordained by God just to be a recipient of grace. You are also chosen by sovereign, divine, forgiving, delivering, transforming grace to be an instrument of that grace in the life of others. The church is not ecclesiastical Macy's. This is not a religious department store, thank you. You're not here to shop. You're part of something. And can I say this? It's not your choice. If you think you have a choice as to whether you're going to minister or not, you have it all wrong. You are not sovereign, in case you didn't realize that. God is. And he has made this choice for you that, that you are part of his work. Now watch what I'm going to do. You have to look up here at me. Ministry is not stepping out of your life into a moment of serving Jesus and stepping back out of serving Jesus into your life. Your life doesn't belong to you anymore. You don't have any life that's yours. It all belongs to Jesus. He bought you. He owns you. He owns your mentality and your personality and your emotionality and your physicality. It all belongs to Him. That's who he is, and that's who you are. And so your life is ministry. Every dimension of your life, you must live with a ministry mentality. Listen, Jesus didn't come to make your little claustrophobic kingdom of one work. Jesus came to invite you to a much better kingdom. And ministry is beginning to understand what it means to live for the big sky kingdom of God. Now, I want to ask you this question. How does God craft us for his ministry? 
How does he form in us the things that we need so we can represent him well in the place where he's put us? If you had a pencil and a piece of paper in front of you right now, and you, on the top of the page, was the question, how does God form you for ministry? Could you write five pages? Could you write two? A page? A paragraph? A sentence? A word? That's what I want to think with you about this morning. How is it that God crafts us for the ministry that he's called us to, because all of us have been called to ministry. Now, I want to give you a principle that at first appearance won't seem like it has anything to do with what I just talked about. And it's okay for you to be confused because I'm going to unconfuse you later. But this principle is is very connected to this thing that we're now talking about. Here it is. There is a deep and significant difference between amazement and faith. There is a deep and significant difference between amazement and faith. My family has for years had the tradition of going to the Jersey Shore for vacation. Um, You know, it's sort of a Philadelphia thing to do. You go down the shore. Not down to the shore, down the shore. And although my children are all grown now, I'm no longer a recent graduate of college, um, they still like to go to Wildwood because on the boardwalk there are those three huge amusement parks and ride the rides. And there is this ride there, I guess you would call it a ride, that just amazes me. It's a big metal structure, and hanging from that are big elastic cords, and there's this pouch at the bottom. It looks like the world's biggest slingshot. And human beings actually pay money to lay in that pouch They tie them in, and they pull them back, and they launch them over the Atlantic Ocean. You know, you can text home, Mom, I paid $7 today and almost died. Yeah! (laughs) Now, that thing amazes me. The first time we saw this, I stood there like this. I couldn't believe that human beings were actually paying money to do this. And I can tell you for sure, I was absolutely stunned, amazed by that ride, but there's no way that you are putting Paul Tripp in that pouch and tying him in and launching him in the night over the Atlantic Ocean. Thank you. I'm amazed, but I'm not about to put my faith in that thing. Now keep those two things together. How does God craft us for his work? And there is a significant difference between amazement and faith. And turn in your Bibles to Mark 6. And I'm going to read beginning with verse 45, but I'm not going to do that yet. 
I want to set this up for you. Jesus had chosen disciples to follow him. And he wasn't only interested that they would be witnesses to his messianic mission. His will would, was that they would be participants in it. You get the distinction? They were not just chosen to be witnesses to his messianic mission. They were chosen to be participants in it. And so Jesus wasn't just interested that they would get the information of the gospel, that they would sort of know Christ's identity and a little bit about his purpose. No, Jesus was interested for the disciples in nothing less than radical personal transformation. It's not just enough to have the information of the gospel. Jesus wanted these boys to be transformed by the gospel. And so Jesus was crafting experiences for these men that they would need to go through. And those experiences would bring together, listen to what I'm about to say, difficulty and glory. For reasons that had to do with their preparedness for this messianic mission, God would, Jesus would craft difficult situations for them. Situations that would take them beyond their strength, beyond their wisdom, beyond their character, and just at the moment when they were about to despair, wondering what in the world was going on, Christ would reveal his messianic glory. So they would understand, it's not about my strength, it's not about my wisdom, it's not about my character, because my life has been invaded by the glorious Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now that difficulty is meant to drive you away from you. Because guess what? It's not those other people, it's not situations that's in the way of God's plan for you, I'm about to hurt your feelings. You are. Your arrogance, your self-righteousness, your reliance on your strength, your trust of your wisdom. And so what difficulty is meant to do is diminish your reliance on you and glory is meant to increase your reliance on Christ. And so all through the life of the disciples, difficulty and glory are kissing. It's the way it's supposed to be. And Jesus does this because he knows how sturdy our self-reliance is, how sturdy our view of our righteousness is, how sturdy our thoughts of our wisdom is. Listen, true righteousness only ever begins when you come to the end of yourself. And there is this gospel equation that runs through Mark. I love this. I can give it to you. This is suitable for your refrigerator. I gave this equation once at 10th, and I said it was suitable for the morning mirror. You know, when you look at the mirror? Everybody in the congregation thought I said it was suitable for your morning beer. That worked for me. I didn't understand what the question was. 
I think it's important when I have my morning beer to remember Jesus. <laughs> Lest the alcohol means too much to me. Sorry, I couldn't resist. Now here's the, here's the equation. Divine power plus divine compassion equals everything you need. Divine power plus divine compassion equals everything you need. Listen, if, if Jesus was only all-powerful, you wouldn't run to him. You would want, run away from him. And so the Gospels don't just put the power of Jesus before us. They put before us stunning compassion. Compassion is hard to wrap your brain around. Compassion that moves him to do things he wouldn't do without compassion. <coughs> so here it is. DP plus DC equals EYN. Divine power plus divine compassion equals everything you need. Now that's just all introduction to the passage. Just look at it. Mark 6, 45. Get the model. The disciples don't understand it, but they are in the school of discipleship 24-7. Fasten your seatbelts. So are you. Because you've been called to be participant disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are living in the school of discipleship. Discipleship is not something that's just a program of the church. It's the zeal of your Savior. Now, it's right for us to try to disciple people, but don't think that's what discipleship is about in its fundamental form. In the fundamental form, discipleship is the zeal of the Redeemer to transform you into a self-centered person to a person who now lives for His glory and the purposes of His kingdom. That's what's going on 24-7. Let me read, beginning with verse 45. Immediately He made the disciples get into the boat and go before Him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while He dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But they saw him walking on the sea, and they thought it was a ghost, and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid." And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Mysterious little passage. Now here's the scene. The disciples are in another, another moment of frustrating difficulty. Jesus has said, get in the boat and row it across the Galilee. doesn't seem difficult. But what they encounter is this fierce headwind. And if you know the way that time is being calculated in the New Testament, these guys had probably rowed for eight hours. It's now the wee hours of the morning. They're totally exhausted. They're hopeless to ever be able to complete the task. They're in a rather dangerous situation because it's an angry sea. They are now in a situation that's way beyond their strength, way beyond their, their wisdom, way beyond any control that they would have. 
Now check out the passage. They're not there because they've been foolish. They're not there because they've acted unwisely. They're there because they've obeyed the command of Christ. Jesus has them exactly where he wants them. This difficulty is not in their lives because he has been unfaithful or inattentive. This difficulty is uncomfortable grace. It's uncomfortable grace that is being formed in him. Listen, grace isn't always a cool drink. Grace isn't always a pillow. Sometimes you're getting grace at the same moment you're crying out, where is the grace of Jesus? But it's not the grace of relief. And it's not the grace of release because that's not the grace you actually need. What you need is the grace of refinement. And God knows exactly what kind of grace you need. And so often, this side of eternity, because I'm not yet a grace graduate and neither are you, God's grace comes to us in uncomfortable forms. This is grace operating. Now, just at the height of these guys' despair, Jesus does something that is one of the most radical, awesome, hard-to-imagine demonstrations of His glory that the New Testament records. Remember the scene. There is this fierce headwind, so fierce these guys have, have rode for eight hours and they've actually lost distance, not gained it. The sea is angry. And what does Jesus do? He walks out on the water. And he purposely walks by them so that everybody in the boat can see what he's doing. You're acting way too passive. He walked on the water. 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 Right through the headwind. Right over the angry sea. Now check it out. If he just wanted to relieve these boys, all he had to do is stand on the shore and say, Stop. The wind would have been over and they would have rode on. Thank you, Jesus, for relief. But that's not what he was wanting to do. What he was wanting to do is demonstrate awesome glory to them. You want to know who I am? You want to know what I can do? You want to know now what has evaded your life? You want to get what kind of hope you have? Watch this. I am Lord of Lords. I am King of Kings. I am the Creator Savior. I can do anything with my universe that I want to do. I am God. And it's no longer you and your little situation. If you walk around feeling down and alone, you don't get the gospel. It's impossible for you to be alone if you're God's child. It's over. There's no more aloneness. And if you're, you're telling yourself, I don't know what I'm going to do, I don't know what I'm going to do, I'm so alone, no one understands me, you are committing acts of gospel irrationality. 
Sorry, it's true. Now, wow, look at your Bibles. Verse 49, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. Now, this is an amazing thing. These guys have been in the school of discipleship. They have seen an awesome display of the glory of Christ. They've seen phenomenal healings. They've heard wisdom teaching like they never heard before. They've seen resurrections. They've seen 5,000 people fed by a little boy's lunch. They saw Christ stand up in a boat and say to the elements, be still, and there was peace in creation. They should not be unprepared for this moment. And rather than seeing the glory of the Messiah, they're terrified thinking they're seeing ghosts. I have to say this because I, I should pastor you a bit here. There are people in this room, in your moment of difficulty, you're better at seeing ghosts than Jesus. And then it says this, Jesus said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Man, if I had been Jesus walking on that water, I would have stopped and said, are you kidding me? Look what I'm doing. Are you nuts? After all I've done for you, this is what I get? But that's not what Jesus does. An astounding display of patient grace that I'm going to be a student of still 10 million years into eternity because that grace is so incredible and so amazing, it's still hard for me to wrap my little pea brain around it. In stunning grace, he speaks to them and says, it is I, don't be afraid. I believe that Jesus is using words that are rooted in a theology of his identity. He's saying, I am the I am. I'm the one who was. I'm the one who is. I'm the one who will be. I'm the ultimate fulfillment of all the covenant promises. I am the Son of God. I am what Abraham cried for. I'm what the prophets prophesied for. I am. I am. I am. I am is in your life. Don't you get it? This is I am, not a ghost. Now, stay with me. Look at your Bibles. He got into the boat and the wind ceased because the elements operate according to his command and they were utterly astounded. Now that sounds like a good thing, but I'm going to demonstrate to you 
that Mark is not saying that that's a good thing. He's actually saying it's a negative thing. And this is a powerful word. I want to explain this word to you. Astounded. Let me give you an example of what it means to be astounded. This is a big word. Pretend with me that we're standing on the edge of Rittenhouse Square and up pulls the most awesome sports car you've ever seen. It is just drop-dead gorgeous. It's about this high at its highest point. And the design of it is absolutely amazing. You've never seen uh, an automobile with these lines. And as the guy goes to get out, he presses the button. It's got gullwing doors that lift up. And he's more laying down than sitting. And he gets out of the car and you say, you say hey, can I just look inside? And I mean... The inside of this car looks more like a rocket ship than an automobile. You're just mesmerized. And you, and you, you get a little bold for a moment. You say to the guy, uh, would you mind me just asking you, how much did this cost? And the guy says, no, that's okay. He says, $495,000. Well, you're pretty impressed at that point. And this... Dude gets in, back into that automobile. He starts it up, and it levitates out of sight. Now you're astounded. <laughs> you were pretty impressed at that point. And you're like... <laughs> astounded means you are deeply impressed, watch what I'm going to say, because you were unprepared for what you were about to see. You're deeply impressed because you're unprepared for what you were about to see. There is a huge difference between amazement and faith. You can be amazed at the theology of Scripture and not be living by faith. You can be amazed at that sweep of the redemptive story in all of its glory, but not be living by faith. You can be amazed by the preaching of Eric Mason and not be living by faith. You can be amazed by glorious God, Godward worship and not be living by faith. <clears throat> you can be amazed by the love of this community of believers and not be living by faith. There is a crucial and significant difference between amazement and faith. Here it is. Amazement is, the, is a function of the brain. Faith is an investment of the heart. Amazement is not the end of God's work. It's something along the way in God's work. But God wants to take you away from amazement to a place where you are, you are now living expectantly. You're now living by faith. Amen. <clears throat> you can talk amongst yourselves. I'll give you a topic. <clears throat> Now, 
Now, go back to your Bibles. Because one thing that you don't see much in the Gospel of Mark is Mark editorializing. You know what I mean by that? Mark doesn't add many of his own comments. The other, the other Gospels do. Luke has all kinds of things to say. Mark doesn't say much. He, he basically just records the life of Christ. But this is a point where Mark makes editorial comments. Look where the passage goes. They were astounded for or because they did not understand the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. The reason they were not prepared for the glory that they would see in their moment of difficulty is because they had not learned their lessons. When Mark says they didn't understand the loaves, he's using that, that, that miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 as a summary that means this, they didn't understand the message of all the miracles that they had viewed. They didn't understand what Christ was revealing. They didn't understand that he was trying to lay in their hearts that gospel equation. Divine power plus divine compassion means everything I need. A God of divine power and a God of divine compassion has now by sovereign grace invaded my life. I don't need to be afraid. Because because of that power he is able and because of that compassion he is willing, he will deliver to me everything I need. Oh no, not your definition of need. One of the sloppiest words in Western culture is the word need. The vast majority of what we say we need, we don't need. You know, when my kids were young, we'd be someplace shopping and they would see sneakers that they liked. And they'd say, Dad, I need those sneakers. I'd look down and see leather-encased feet. It wasn't a need. But in their distorted view of need, they would then judge my love for them by my willingness to participate in their little definition of need. <laughs> Listen, when you do that, when you, when you want God to serve your little definition of need, you turn blessings into entitlements and you live a complaining, demanding life. And you bring God into the court of your own judgment. You stand him in front of your bench and you question his goodness and his love. Divine power plus divine compassion means you get everything God knows you need. Now these guys didn't understand it. They didn't understand that they were being taught that they don't need to be afraid because they're no longer reliant on themselves. That God is actually rescuing them from themselves. 
so that they would find hope that's expansively bigger than their wisdom, their strength, their righteousness. I mean, think about this. Why does Jesus say, don't parade your righteousness in front of men? Because you don't have any. Every righteous thing that you have is Christ. If you're parading your righteousness in front of men, you're already in trouble because you believe something that's not true about you, let alone the fact that it's a proud thing to do. It's bad enough to be proud. It's really bad to be delusional and proud at the same time. So these guys weren't learning their lessons. There's this great display of purposeful difficulty coupled with glory that was meant to change these guys, not just change their thinking, change the operation of their heart, change their thoughts, their motives, their emotions, their desires. They were in the process of being transformed, but they didn't get it. I got to ask you, are you learning your lessons? Are you stuck? Are you going through the same discouragement, the same fear, the same questions again and again and again? Why aren't you learning your lessons? You're being crafted for kingdom living and kingdom work. Are you learning your lessons? And then Mark says this. They didn't learn their lessons because their hearts were hardened. It's a very important biblical word picture. A hardened heart means that your heart is resistant to change. God is working transformation, but you're not interested in transformation. And so in ways that you may not understand, you're actually resisting the very grace that you think you celebrate. Do you get what I said? You may celebrate it on Sunday morning, and by Sunday evening, you're already resisting it again. And the picture is of a stony heart. Now imagine I have a stone this, this size in my hands, and I try to do this and this and this, and what happens? Nothing, because it's hard. You put soft clay in my hands, and I do this, and it takes the form of all the pressure that's put on it. Now, maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, okay, I sort of get the concept, but I'm not sure. Well, let me take this a couple places for you. First of all, I am deeply persuaded that hardness of heart is not about dissatisfaction. It's about satisfaction. I don't think the big difficulty of the church of Jesus Christ is that we're dissatisfied. I think our problem is we're all too satisfied. We're, we're, we're satisfied with where we are. We're satisfied with what we're doing. And we don't wake up every morning with a with a deep desire to be further transformed, a hunger for the radical rebuilding of grace, 
I'm going to hurt your feelings again. Listen, no one in this room needs to be tweaked. You tweak a poorly written sentence. Every one of us needs to be radically undone and rebuilt by grace. Radical transformation is what all of us need. And you either are into that or you're not. And I think we just get satisfied. And we don't really hunger to grow. Oh, when you first come to Christ, you're blown away and you want to get everything that He has for you. But something happens with a little bit of knowledge and a little bit of participation in ministry and a little bit of a changed life. We chill out and we relax and we're just not interested anymore. No, the Bible calls that a hard heart. You say, oh, Paul, I, I'm still not sure... I understand the dynamic well. Let me use this illustration. Luella and I, this dear lady, who is my wife, we've been married 39 years. Isn't that amazing? Now I know you're looking at me and thinking this man is way too young to be married that long. So if you're trying to calculate my age, I was married at seven. <laughs> and we gave birth to a son, our oldest son, Justin, who just didn't understand the concept of gifts as a little boy. It drove me crazy. We'd buy something for him for a birthday or Christmas, and typically he would tear open the package, discard the toy, and play with the box. It made me nuts. And so we decided one Christmas that we would go on a quest for the quintessential Justin gift. We were absolutely persuaded that we would find something he would play with. When it came to the moment for him to open that gift, we were surely more excited about him opening that gift than he would have ever been. And he tore into the package like a little boy would, not thinking about recycling, and actually got the toy out and began to play with it. I had such a feeling of victory. And I went into the kitchen to get something to drink and got into a conversation with somebody. And when I came out, he was sitting in the box. Now maybe you're thinking, why is this man telling us this cute story? Well, here it is. You have been given the most awesome gift that you could ever be given. It's a gift that's gorgeous from every perspective. It is the essential gift of gifts. Whether you realize it or not, it is the gift that every human being desperately needs. It's the one gift, the only gift, that you could ever be given that will change you and everything about you. It is the gift of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I am persuaded in the face of having been given that gift, there are many believers who are content to play with the box. They're content with a little bit of theological knowledge. They're content with a little bit of biblical literacy. They're content with a little bit of participation in ministry. They're content with dropping a few coins in the basket. 
But if you would watch the interior of their life, if you would watch what grips their hopes and dreams, they're not saying, I'm going to hold onto this glorious gift of grace. I'm not letting go. I'm going to go wherever this grace is promoted, wherever this grace is taught with people who love this grace. I will not let go of this gift of grace till it's done exactly what it's meant to do, radically transform me into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not letting go of this grace. This is scary to say, but you can be amazed by grace and not be living on the basis of it. There is a radical difference between amazement and faith. Amazement is a function of the brain. Faith is an investment of the heart. Now look at me. I mean, look at me. By awesome, undeserved, unearned, unachieved grace, you have been chosen to be a worker in the most glorious kingdom that you could ever imagine. You have been chosen to be part of the most important work in the universe. Are you learning your lessons? In moments of difficulty, do you still question God's faithfulness, question His love, question His grace, question the purposes, uh, the principles of His Word? Are there moments where you're still more astounded than motivated by faith? Hear what I'm about to say. Those guys in that boat should not have been uh, astounded. They should have been expectant and at rest. Are you with me? They should have expected glory because they'd seen it invade their lives again and again and again. And they should not have been terrified in the storm because it is said, even though we don't see the Messiah, He's with us and He will provide for us. We get who we are and we get who He is. It's not a compliment that they were astounded. It's a critique. Because their amazement was a revelation of the hardness of their hearts. Are you yet dissatisfied with who you are and where you are? You should be. You should be thankful and dissatisfied at the same time. And I have to say this to you. You are blessed to be loved by a dissatisfied Redeemer who will not relent until every microbe of sin is driven out of every cell, of every heart, of every one of His children. Praise Him. Are you all too comfortable with where you are 
Or do you say, my life is still held too much by my own little kingdom. I still am too comfortable with where I am. I still don't long as I should to live in the service of God's kingdom. Oh God, won't you continue to transform me by your grace? I have to say this. There may be somebody in this room and you would have to admit this morning that your entire relationship to Christianity has been more amazement than faith. Maybe you don't know this faith at all. And I would plead with you, run to the Redeemer this morning, don't wait. And say, I have been amazed by you, but I have never placed my trust in you. I have seen a display of your glory, but it has left me unmoved. I pray that you would forgive me and that you would grace me with faith. Perhaps you're a believer and maybe what you need to say is, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I haven't learned my lessons. I've been all too satisfied with where I am. Everyone in this room, has been called not to just to be a recipient of grace, but to be a conduit of grace. You've all been drafted into the service of the King. May that be the thing that gets us up in the morning. And may in the dissatisfaction of faith, we say, I want more, 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 until your work is fully done. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the stunning ability of your word to get into the spaces of our lives where light needs to show. Thank you for the way that your spirit works your word into our hearts. And Lord, I pray, I'm so bold as to pray that this moment of considering your word would not just be another moment of information, but would result in personal transformation by your grace. Thank you. We pray these things in the sweet and strong name of Jesus. Amen.